Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and I'm standing in today for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who is our CEO and will be back with you next week. Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day who was catching me up on pop culture news, those sort of topics, and she had read in People magazine that Mark Summers, the well-known Food Network host of Unwrapped, and the beloved host of the 80s Nickelodeon game show, Double Dare, had been diagnosed with cancer back in 2009. According to the article, after an initial misdiagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma and being told he had six months to live, it was determined that he, in fact, had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The article went on to say that Mark underwent a two-year course of chemotherapy and is now in remission. And my friend started to pepper me with questions. Like most people, she knows leukemia is cancer, but not much beyond that, and nothing at all really about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So I told her to tune in to today's show, and all of her questions would be answered, because coincidentally, I had planned to bring Dr. Tom LeBlanc on the show to talk about just that specific cancer. Dr. LeBlanc is a medical oncologist and palliative care physician and patient experience researcher at Duke University School of Medicine's Duke Cancer Institute. His clinical practice focuses on the care of patients with hematologic malignancies, with a particular emphasis on myeloid conditions such as acute leukemias. He is an active member of the inpatient non-transplant hematologic malignancies care team of Duke Hospital. Dr. LeBanc's research focuses on common issues faced by patients with cancer, particularly those with high-risk or relapsed and refractory hematologic malignancy, which we'll define later in this show. These issues, which include symptom burden and quality of life, can lead patients to difficult decision-making scenarios. Dr. LeBlanc's research aims to improve the experience of patients with blood cancers, including the involvement of the specialist and palliative care services as a part of their comprehensive cancer care, even alongside active cancer-directed therapy. And I want to make sure that we highlight that, that palliative care is administered alongside of active cancer-directed therapy to help manage symptoms. Welcome to the show, Dr. LeBlanc. Thanks so much, Linda. It's great to be here. Well, we've done a lot of work with you and greatly respect what you do for uh, patients and then also to contribute for your colleagues that, that, that they will learn you know, with, around this patient experience and, and how they can uh, treat patients in, in a different way. So let's just uh, jump right into some of the discussion around chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And very simple terms as if you were teaching you know, a sixth grade science class or a fifth grade science class, can you explain to us what we're talking about when we're talk- using the words specialty hematologic malignancies? Sure. Well, it, it's certainly a mouthful to say, isn't it? Uh, but really, it's relatively simple if you break it down like this. Hematologic malignancies just really means blood cancers. So just like cancers can happen in solid organ tumors, like a colon or a liver or the lungs, they can also happen in the blood. 
and the blood is actually made up a lot of a lot of different kinds of cells that each do different things. They all have different jobs related to the immune system, for example, or making sure that we don't just bleed spontaneously, or making sure that our blood can carry oxygen and energy so that we can uh, be athletic and be active and feel good and healthy and normal. So basically, when any one of those different kinds of blood cells goes awry, and there are many different kinds of these cells, um, they can grow unregulated and unchecked, and that's basically what a cancer is. And ultimately, the kind of blood cancer that we actually call it really depends on which specific type of those cells it started in and what their particular job happens to be. Well, so let's break that down a little bit, and let's start at the top with what is leukemia and how many different types of leukemia are there? Yeah, so there are a lot of different kinds of leukemia. So leukemia really just means cancer in the blood. So Mm -hmm. we might, for example, draw blood from a person's vein when they come into the clinic. And classically, we would see evidence of leukemia there by virtue of just having too many of certain types of blood cells in their routine blood counts. So classically, it would just be an elevated white blood cell count, just too many of those white blood cells. And those are the ones that tend to be important for fighting off infections, and they're an essential part of our immune system. There really are two main kinds of leukemias. We break them down into either acute leukemias or chronic leukemias. And can you go ahead and say a little bit more about the difference between those two or the considerations between those two? Sure. So once we start going down this pathway under the umbrella into either acute or chronic leukemias, there are a lot more branch points under that. And it's important for us to figure out exactly which type or subtype of leukemia we're dealing with because it has pretty significant implications for maybe how we might expect the leukemia to impact a person's life. Uh, Is it something that's curable or is it incurable? Is it something that we might expect to be more of a chronic kind of a disease? Uh, Is it even something that we might not recommend treatment and we might just want to observe for a while? And these factors uh, really, really vary tremendously across the different kinds of leukemias. Really, generally speaking, though, acute leukemias are called acute because they tend to come on pretty quickly and they tend to cause trouble relatively quickly. So we don't usually expect a person to have an acute leukemia for years and not know it, for example. Usually it would cause significant symptoms and problems within a matter of a few weeks or maybe a month or two. They usually aren't things that kind of slowly fester and and come on with with few symptoms at first. It's pretty sudden, and that's really why we call them acute leukemias. The chronic leukemias, on the other hand, some people live with for years with no symptoms at all and may not even know they have it. It's not uncommon for us to actually diagnose a chronic leukemia by accident on routine blood work that prompts some further testing. And that's something we can talk a little bit more about as we get into chronic lymphocytic leukemia in particular, because that is one that that often does that. Uh, There are really a a few main types of chronic leukemias and a few main types of acute leukemias, but even under those main groupings, it starts to get pretty confusing and, and complicated really quickly, and that's probably beyond what would be useful for us to talk about here. 
I think what would be useful to talk about is the difference between lymphocytic and myeloid leukemia. So we we're talking about CLL today, which is a lymphocytic leukemia, but I know we have also talked about it, um, at times CML or AML. So can you explain the difference between the lymphoid and myeloid leukemias? Sure. So these words, lymphoid and, and myeloid, are really just kind of fancy medical terms for the kind of blood cells that are involved and what their jobs tend to be. So the myeloid lineage of blood cells that basically come from your bone marrow, which is the hollow space inside the, the long bones uh, in the body mostly, and in, in the, the skeleton like in your spine and, and ribs, uh, that's like the blood factory where these cells grow up and are, are made, and then as they become more mature, they go out into the vein and the, the regular blood. But uh, these myeloid cells start off as um, kind of like babies that haven't grown up yet. They're not, they don't yet have really specific jobs and tasks to do. You know, they're not full-grown adults that have a particular career in one area. They're sort of, um, they have great potential, but they're not yet developed and differentiated. Um, the myeloid cells, uh, by virtue of that kind of um, undifferentiated thing, can basically grow up into a lot of different kinds of mature blood cells like the platelets that uh, help us to clot and prevent us from bleeding spontaneously or the red blood cells that carry oxygen and energy or some of the white blood cells, certain types of infection-fighting cells. So there's a kind of a cell that we call a neutrophil, and that one is really, really important for fighting off bacterial infections. If we didn't have any neutrophils, for example, every time we brush our teeth and a little bacteria gets into our bloodstream, we would get really sick and could even die from that. But we have these great neutrophil cells that fight off any little bits of bacteria that get in there and they protect us. So those are the, the myeloid kinds of cells, and there are many others too, but that's sort of the general gist of it. The lymphoid cells are a bit more specific of a kind of a cell, and they're ones that tend to do things more like um, making antibodies, which many of us have, have heard about. They're the things that basically help us fight off really specific kind of infections. So that's, for example, how uh, vaccines work often. If you get a flu vaccine, basically we introduce a little bit of the virus into you in a, a form that is, is dead. It can't make you sick, but your immune system recognizes it as a foreign substance, and then it makes these antibodies so that if you really get exposed to the actual live flu virus, your body already knows how to fight it off, and it can more quickly tackle it and maybe even prevent you from getting sick or make you be a lot less sick than you otherwise would be. So those are the lymphoid kinds of cells that are responsible for making those antibodies, which are an important part of our immune system, but it's different than the ones I described in the myeloid lineage, those neutrophil kinds of cells that fight off infections in very different ways than producing antibodies. So you might hear about things called B cells or T cells, and those are the two main types of lymphoid cells or lymphocytes. And ultimately, those are the kinds of cells that can go awry and lead to something like a chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So if you're looking at chronic lymphocytic leukemia, there are two different types, and those involve either B cell or T cell. Is that what you're saying? 
Um, they're different well, ones it gets, still. It, it gets a little bit more complicated than that, unfortunately, like most things in medicine. Um, we, we usually think of CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, as a, as a B-cell process. There are mm-hmm. other T-cell diseases that are kind of related and that can kind of look like, like it, but usually we, we classically think of CLL as being a B-cell disease. But it does kind of come in a couple different flavors, and this really confuses people, so it's probably worth talking a little bit more about that. So CLL sometimes behaves like a leukemia, meaning we see it mostly in the blood. These abnormal cells are circulating around with the normal blood cells, and we can detect them when we draw blood from the vein. But sometimes it comes in a version that looks more like a lymphoma. And this difference between leukemia and lymphoma is something that that can be kind of confusing. But really, what a lymphoma is, is um, when we see the abnormal cells actually in the lymph system, like what we sometimes refer to as our our lymph glands or our lymph nodes. So, you know, when you get a sore throat and you feel kind of some swelling on the side of your neck and you feel those little lumps or bumps and they might be even tender, um, like maybe when you got strep throat as a kid, for example, those are our lymph nodes or our lymph glands. And those are an important part of the immune system where certain types of immune cells kind of live and grow up or uh, hone to when we are fighting off infection. Sometimes CLL tends to present in a way where it's more like swollen lymph nodes instead of elevated white blood cell count in the vein, in the blood that we could draw. And so that's the, the other version of it that you might call where under the microscope, these blood cells look relatively similar, but they can behave in different ways where some versions are more like the leukemia kind and some versions are more like the lymphoma kind. And when it's the lymphoma kind, you sometimes will hear it referred to as something called SLL, which is small lymphocytic lymphoma. But really, it's, it's kind of the same disease with really the same types of treatments as CLL when the leukemia cells are just circulating in the blood, but not necessarily causing these enlarged lymph node masses. Well, I think just from this snapshot, our listeners can get a sense of really how complex the liquid tumor environment is. Um, and thank goodness for, for people like you who really have devoted your life to, to, to learning not only how to diagnose, but also to treat and to support uh, individuals with that. We have to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. LeBlanc, taking a look at symptoms and how chronic lymphocytic leukemia is diagnosed. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back with more after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda House and I'm sitting in for our regular host, Kim Tibaldo, who is off today. We're taking a close look at chronic lymphocytic leukemia with Dr. Tom LeBlanc, a medical oncologist and palliative care physician and patient experience researcher at Duke University School of Medicine's Duke Cancer Institute. And we've just heard a lot about the science or the way in which CLL manifests itself. Dr. LeBlanc, let's talk about the patient. How does it really manifest itself in what the patient feels? What are the symptoms that people have with CLL? Well, this is such an important question, but just like what we've talked about so far, it's complicated and it's very variable. So that'll be the theme that goes through the answers to a lot of these questions. Some people who have CLL really don't have any symptoms at all. And as I mentioned, can be diagnosed uh, basically by accident on a blood test, seeing just a mildly elevated white blood cell count. Other people, though, may have pretty significant symptoms, and those can be things like fevers, or unintentional weight loss. Some people actually get night sweats. So they may wake up in the middle of the night with really drenching sweat where they have to change the sheets or change their bedclothes. It's often not quite that dramatic, though. Other symptoms could be easy bruising or bleeding from having abnormal blood counts or um, things like just general malaise and fatigue, not quite feeling right which can be a symptom of anemia, again, having low blood cell counts. Uh, Shortness of breath is something else that can sometimes happen when people develop anemias. Other people with CLL can develop 
lymph node swelling, as I mentioned. So sometimes the first sign or symptom could just be an asymptomatic lump or bump that they noticed somewhere in a place that is easy to feel where lymph nodes live. So that's usually on the sides of the neck or just above the collarbone, um, under the armpits, or in the skin folds in the groin, kind of where your legs meet your hips and pelvis. And so, again, I think about how many times we say to patients, know your body, know your body, know your body. And it really sounds like this is one of those situations where the patient may, you know, realize that there's something not quite right and um, come in and, and seek treatment or diagnosis. Absolutely. And sometimes it is relatively subtle. So sometimes persistence is the only way that these things ultimately get diagnosed and come to medical attention. Thankfully, though, we do often find and diagnose CLL in relatively early kinds of of stages where um, it isn't necessarily causing any symptoms or problems. And one of the common uh, phenomenons here is is where we just find it in the blood by accident, like I mentioned, on some routine Mm -hmm. blood work. So when you do have a suspicion, what, um, what are the kind of tests or exams that you do to help diagnose patients? Yeah, it's really important for patients and families to recognize that when your doctor does blood work, there are only a few tests that usually get ordered routinely. And those tests are not very fancy or sophisticated ones. So I commonly hear from folks uh, questions about why why we didn't find this, why why we didn't know that they had a blood cancer, and usually the answer is that the regular old blood work that you might get from your primary doctor might not even include a blood count. It might just be what we call blood chemistries, looking at the kidney function, or it might be liver function tests. We don't always even do complete blood counts in healthy adults because it's not clear that that's a uh, a useful screening test. So, you know, it's not like a mammogram or a colonoscopy or getting a pap smear where there's really clearly a screening procedure for these kinds of diseases that we know helps with early detection and uh, helping people live longer and be cured of these diseases and, and saving lives. That's part of why this sometimes just kind of happens out of the blue or by accident. So if a person has something going on that makes the doctor order the blood count that they might not necessarily routinely do, that might be the first clue. But usually the first clue is just a mild elevation in the total white blood cell count. Usually it's somewhere in the range of maybe three to 10, depending on the lab, four to nine and a half, something like that. Patients with CLL might come in with no symptoms and their white count might be 11, you know, very mild elevation. The way that we really prove that a person has CLL is a little bit more fancy. So usually you have to go and see somebody who is a hematologist or oncologist, and they will sometimes look at the blood under the microscope or send it to a pathologist who specializes in looking at blood under the microscope to see if they see hallmarks of the disease. And then we will also often send a test called flow cytometry uh, from the blood drawn from the vein. And this is a particularly fancy kind of a way to actually tag and label these cells and see if they are abnormal cancer-like cells instead of just more normal blood cells. And so is there a point in time when patients would have to go through a bone marrow biopsy too as a part of the definitive diagnosis? That's a really great question. 
And, you know, CLL is one of the few situations in blood cancer care where we don't necessarily jump to doing a bone marrow aspirate or biopsy. Uh, it is part of how we would diagnose an acute leukemia, leukemia. But with chronic leukemia, since usually they are circulating in the blood from the vein, we don't necessarily have to do a bone marrow biopsy to, to diagnose it or to prove that that's what it is. And often with CLL, we actually don't do that. And that can be entirely okay. So that's good news for patients. They don't, they don't have to worry about that. Absolutely. So, you know, we hear a lot about genetics and genomics. Do those come into, and we've done a number of shows, so for our listeners, you know, I, I would encourage you to look at the, or to take a listen to some of the archived radio shows and learn a little bit more about those, but would, do genetics or genomics come into play with CLL? Yes, they very much do. In a lot of ways, blood cancer care overall has been a bit ahead of the solid tumor world in terms of personalized medicine. So when we send off that flow cytometry test that I mentioned, we often are also sending off some other kind of fancier tests that look at the actual genetics of those leukemia cells. So with CLL in particular, there is a whole array of genetic abnormalities that we can look for in the leukemia cells themselves that can help us get a better sense for whether it's likely to be a more aggressive or a less aggressive version of CLL. And really the standard of care now is to send those tests at the time of diagnosis and to utilize the, the answers to those tests to help us decide maybe who might need treatment right now versus who might need it later or who we may be more comfortable just kind of watching and not actively giving treatment to. So this is a really central part of how we manage CLL today. Well, and since you mentioned it, let's let's talk about watching. You know, and uh, oftentimes it's termed watch and wait. And can you just explain that a little bit to our listeners and particularly if someone is in the watch and wait phase, what that really means? Sure. This, this is something that I know is very scary for people who are facing a cancer diagnosis. You know, I have cancer. What do you mean you're not going to do anything about it? I don't want to sit around and watch. But with CLL and, and with some other diseases like certain um, types of prostate cancers that are maybe less aggressive, a watch and wait strategy really can be the best or the right way to approach a particular person's uh, cancer. So with CLL, we know that actually most people with this disease live for more than five years. So you could imagine that if this is a disease that might not really do much of anything aggressive to cause symptoms or cause problems with the blood counts or cause problems with the organ function, that we really wouldn't want to expose somebody to chemotherapies that could cause problems. They could cause side effects and toxicities and other kinds of issues that make a person's life be more difficult. Uh, if we don't need those, we really don't want to resort to giving those types of things to people. And so in CLL, it's been found over the years that some people really don't need any treatment for quite a while or maybe not at all, depending on how long they live with the disease. Since this is a disease that is much more common with age, you can imagine that if we find it for the first time in somebody who's in their 90s, for example, that you know, they, they may have other health problems that are life-limiting, whereby the, the chronic leukemia may not be expected to cause any trouble, and really the right approach might be to just kind of leave that alone and monitor it. So when we do that, 
the doctor and the patient together decide on a monitoring plan that they're comfortable with, but often that just involves coming to the clinic maybe every three months or every six months, maybe even just once a year to recheck those blood counts and to get a sense for whether there's been any change over time. So just to, just to recap that before we go to a quick commercial break, and I'll tell the, the listeners we're going to come back with talking about some of the active treatments that are available for CLL. But if somebody's in a watch and wait, what you're saying is, is that their, their disease is at a state where treatment may not really help the disease itself, but it may in fact cause side effects or, or, or cause the patient to experience side effects from treatment that you would give them. So really the risk-benefit scenario doesn't, doesn't match up in those particular patients at least from a physical perspective. That's absolutely right. And we know from a psychosocial perspective, that's a whole other story and that some some people have, you know, said that it's a really um, distressing time for them to, to sort of l- thinking that they're living with cancer, but nothing could be done d- done about it. And that's one of those times when we would encourage them to reach out to our helpline, uh, for example, and, and, and receive some re- support around that. Absolutely. So we have to take a quick commercial break. Dr. LeBlanc is going to stay with us. Please don't go away, and we're going to come back with hearing a little bit more about how we do treat CLL. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host today, Kim Tibaldo, is off and we'll be back with you next week. We are having an in-depth conversation with Dr. Tom LeBlanc about chronic lymphocytic lymphocytic leukemia. And as you can tell, this is really a a complex disease. And thank goodness there has been so much progress. And we have individuals like Dr. LeBlanc working actively on 
this. Dr. LeBlanc is the recipient of a Junior Career Development Award from the National Palliative Care Research Center, which funded his efforts to better understand the experience of patients with acute myeloid leukemia, which is near and dear to my heart, having a father who had that diagnosis, um, including the symptom burdens, quality of life, and understanding of prognosis. His work in palliative care research led to his recognition as an inspirational leader under the age of 40 by the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. And I just have to say that this show is made possible due to the generous support of Janssen, Pharmacyclics, and AbB. Before we went to break, Dr. LeBlanc, we promised our listeners that we would talk about treating CLL. We talked about the watch and wait phase, but what about the treatment phase? What's what's available to patients? Well, sometimes we do need to treat this disease. So we did talk a little bit about active surveillance or, or watch and wait. But when treatment is needed, usually it's because the disease is causing a person to feel badly. So that might be some of the symptoms we mentioned earlier. Or it might be that the disease is, is causing some organ dysfunction. So, you know, if a person has, for example, a lymph node mass that's pressing on the kidney and threatening the kidney function, that could be an indication for treatment. Or if the person is developing abnormal blood counts and symptoms from that, often treating the CLL itself will actually improve those blood counts in the longer term. And the the risk-benefit ratio becomes a little bit more clear that we really should expose a person to some of the side effects and risks of chemotherapies or new oral targeted therapies in an attempt to improve their lives uh, with longevity and quality of life and reduce symptom burden in the longer term by getting their CLL back into a remission. So there really are two main paradigms, I would say, of CLL treatment these days. There is traditional old chemotherapy, and then there are newer targeted agents that don't necessarily work like chemo, but that can be very effective against the leukemia cells. Sometimes we're using these things in combination, and sometimes we're not. And it really depends a lot on the particular person, how healthy they are, um, whether they have any chronic health problems, and matching that up with the particular side effects and issues that are associated with these different medicines and regimens. So I know that you just came back from the American Society of Hematology meeting. And, you know, I would love for you to just top line if there were any significant findings or new studies that that came out of that that particular meeting about CLL. I know it was an active meeting in general. There's always so much going on at that meeting. It's a pretty overwhelming thing. And I was mostly following the acute myeloid leukemia kinds of sessions. So I'm not sure I can comment too meaningfully on really specific things in CLL, but a lot of what we've been seeing at recent conferences and and with publications that have come out about this disease relate to the issue of whether we can, with some of these newer therapies, get people into such deep remissions that maybe their disease doesn't even come back or doesn't come back for quite a long time. And it gets into this issue of whether we need to actually keep people continuously on some of these therapies and whether that really is improving longer-term outcomes. And that's what we're starting to see come out at some of these meetings, some suggestion that maybe that may be the case. Um, So I'm referring to this issue of whether we give people, um, say, intermittent 
chemotherapy for like four months or six months where they might come in every three or four weeks and get some IV medicines and have uh, those kind of intermittent symptoms and issues that go along with that, but then stop it at that point and then kind of watch and see what happens over the next few months or years until the disease comes back enough where we would need to treat it again. Uh, We're sometimes now putting people on pills that they take where they don't have to come in necessarily every few weeks or or month and get all of these blood counts checked and have all kinds of symptoms from the IV chemo, uh, but they would take these medications maybe indefinitely. And so what is that trade-off like? What does it mean to have to decide I may be going to be on this this kind of chemo pill thing for, you know, the next several years or maybe the rest of my life or whatever that might look like for that particular drug versus, oh, I've got to go through this difficult time for the next four to six months, but then after that I can get back to more of a normal life hopefully for quite a while. Um, And that's the piece that really has been evolving quite a bit in concert with this concept called MRD or minimal residual disease. And it's basically that we have such fancy sensitive tests now that can detect really, really teeny tiny levels of a leukemia in a person's blood or bone marrow that we are now seeing some of these new treatments uh, get more people into that really deep remission. And that's looking like it's associated with much uh, longer survivals or um, freedom from symptoms or quality of life impairment kinds of problems. And it's starting to maybe shift the way that we think about these treatments and how to give them and and who we should give them to. Yeah. And so definitely it's not the, uh, there's been a lot of advances. We're not talking about the chemotherapy of 30 years ago when I first started in, in cancer for sure. Yeah. We're still using probably most of, or, or many of those same drugs for diseases like CLL or for uh, some of the acute leukemias that, that I see and treat as well. So let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about this concept of palliative care. And, you know, for a long time, there's been a misperception around what palliative care is. And, and I would love to just take this opportunity to, to, to clear that up, if you wouldn't mind. Of course. So there's a lot of confusion about this term palliative care. And part of that is probably because the field has developed so much in the last five or 10 years that knowledge has struggled to keep up even among uh, clinicians of various types in terms of what we mean when we're saying the term palliative care. So in 2017 and beyond, uh, palliative care really is a, a sophisticated specialty. And uh, it's not a euphemism for death and dying or end of life or we're not giving treatments anymore. It's actually a specialty that provides an extra layer of support for patients and families who are facing a serious illness like a cancer. And it can be provided completely independent of prognosis. And really its goal is to actually improve life, to improve quality of life, to reduce psychological distress, to generally just improve how people are feeling and being supported as they deal with a a cancer or another serious illness. So it can and should be engaged as part of how we take care of people with cancers like CLL, for example. 
And you can actually see a palliative care specialist who has been through specialized training and achieved board certification in that area, just like you would see somebody who specializes in heart disease when you go to the cardiology clinic or someone who specializes in diabetes care who is an endocrinologist and who's expert in other kinds of gland function, like the thyroid, for example. That's really what palliative care has morphed into in the 21st century. Some people who do palliative care work also do specialize in helping people with end-of-life issues, but that's no longer the primary focus. Really, palliative care has moved much farther upstream to be more part of what we do to help people with serious illness. And so just quickly, if, if, if we have patients listening you know, to this, this radio show, how should they go about talking with their physician about palliative care, or when should they talk about, to their physician about palliative care? You know, this is a really tricky issue because actually many physicians don't really understand what palliative care is in the modern conception that I just described. So some physicians instantly will say, oh, you're not ready for that because they think that the patient or family member is asking about hospice care. And hospice care is really end-of-life care, and it usually does entail not doing treatments and uh, spending time at home when a person's time is short, and it really is about improving the end-of-life phase. But again, that's not what palliative care is about. So we have the trouble of needing to educate many physicians and other clinicians that uh, palliative care can be called as a consult and a person can be sent to that clinic. Um, so when a patient or family member is asking about that, it's really important to be specific about what they're hoping to achieve from it. So one example might be if a person is really struggling with psychological well-being, you know, if they're very distressed by their diagnosis and coping with all of the visits that they have to make to the cancer center and the impact of these treatments on their quality of life, and they really need somebody to help them talk through that and decompress some of those issues and maybe even uh, prescribe things that might help with those issues or with related symptom management issues, that could be a way to ask the primary cancer care team for a referral and say, you know, I really feel like I could benefit from this extra layer of support of a palliative care specialist to help me more uh, with my symptoms and with my mood and psychological well-being beyond all the great things that your team is already doing for me. Could you help me and, and send me a referral to their clinic? Great. Thank you. And we are going to take a quick commercial break and please don't go away we still have a lot more to learn about Dr. LeBlanc and from Dr. LeBlanc this is frankly speaking about cancer today's episode is brought to you in part by Janssen Pharmacyclics and AbbVie opinions options answers you're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is brought to you in part by Janssen Pharmacyclics and AbV. I'm Linda House. I'm your guest host today. We have been learning all about chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and I'm so grateful to have had Dr. Tom LeBlanc as our guide here today. Dr. LeBlanc is a medical oncologist and palliative care physician and patient experience researcher at Duke University's School of Medicine's Duke Cancer Institute. And having someone with your background, Dr. LeBlanc, is really remarkable, and your patients are so fortunate to have you. I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself and what really led you to specialize in oncology and um, also palliative care. You know, when I went through my training, I always had this sense that people who were dealing with a serious illness like a cancer were just really special people to have the opportunity to care for. And so as I thought about how I might have an impact on the world with the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm not good at, it all really felt like it lined up that um, participating in, in the lives of people that are dealing with blood cancer just always was such a powerful experience for me. It felt really rewarding throughout my training and continues to do so as I continue to actively care for many people with these diseases. And I always learn something from my patients. I, I get to know them and enter into their lives in some powerful ways. I wish that we didn't have to know each other and that they weren't have to deal, having to deal with these, these difficult situations. And yet I often see really transformative, positive things come out of people's difficult experiences for, for them, for their families, for me. Um, and it's just a, a wonderful example of, of human resilience and uh, the power of conne- connectedness in difficult moments where, you know, when we're all just sort of walking around with our heads down and our cell phones and everything's going great, uh, we don't always have meaningful interactions with other people around us. When we're forced together around something difficult, um, we, 
we can be better people and, and grow, and uh, there's power in those experiences. And so I, I just really want to be part of that and help people who are going through those things. Well, and your work is, has really been groundbreaking in fostering the relationship between patients and caregivers. Um, and in particular, I know that you've done a lot to really empower patients and their caregivers to engage in really meaningful conversations as they're going through their cancer experience. You know, can you share a little bit uh, with our listeners of, around that work? Sure. Well, one of the things that's really difficult when we're facing serious illness situations is uncertainty. So sometimes we're talking about the possibility of a cure, but an aggressive treatment that actually could be harmful. So a great example is a stem cell transplant. I send many of my patients for transplants in the hopes that we will cure their disease that otherwise is probably going to come back and take their life. And they kind of roll the dice and take this risk when they undergo a transplant that they actually could get really sick or even die from the procedure itself, and yet that's their chance. So it's really, really important to be open and honest and talk about the difficult things, the the what-ifs, what happens if things don't go the way that we all want them to go, and to really be open with uh, family members and, and caregivers and with the clinical team, with the, all the doctors and nurses about uh, what the patient really would or wouldn't want and, and what they'd be willing to go through and do, how they would want things to be if they don't go the way that, that we hope them to to go. But it's not just about these these bad outcomes where those conversations need to happen. They also need to happen around treatment decisions. So it's not always a doom and gloom, horrible, difficult conversation kind of a scenario uh, that needs to take place. Sometimes it's really just the discussion about what's important to you as a person. And unfortunately, we we haven't uh, really had much training uh, for most of us in cancer care about how to elicit people's goals and values and preferences when we help them make decisions about treatment. So oftentimes what happens is there's so much information and it's so complicated that we know from multiple studies, uh, patients and families often actually don't really understand their prognosis. In other words, they, they might not understand if their disease is curable or incurable, or they might not understand the risks of one treatment versus another. Sometimes they overestimate the risk. Sometimes they underestimate the risk. Or they might not really understand that they have a choice to make, that the doctor can't really tell you you, you should do treatment A versus treatment B, that really the right treatment might depend more on what they're willing to go through or what they value most in life, what they prioritize. So, for example, is a person willing to go through really difficult treatments that might require a lot of time in the hospital if that means their chance of cure is a bit higher? Or would they really rather just have more time at home or in the clinic setting, even if that means that their chance of cure is a bit lower or that they might live a few weeks or months shorter so that they would have that kind of higher quality time for them if they place more importance on that? So this comes to the concept of what we call shared decision-making. And unfortunately, both on the part of many oncologists and also many patients and caregivers, there's a failure to recognize that this really has to be a collaborative process where we aren't just talking about 
this litany of risks and benefits of treatments like we see in commercials and then saying, you know, which one do you want? But really, we also have to meaningfully engage in discussions about who that patient is and what's important to them in their life and what are they willing to go through to get there. And I do think it's important as we're wrapping the show up that we do um, really emphasize that the physicians, as they're making treatment decisions, really want to know what patients expect, what they hope for, what they value, so that they are able to work with the patient to establish a treatment plan that really helps the patients accomplish as much of that as anything else. Absolutely. I I couldn't say it better. This is such an important point, and it's one where we all just need to get a bit better at learning how to do this. And in the minute that we have left, Dr. LeBlanc, what else would you like our listeners to know about CLL or their experience with their physician? Well, I think in the end, it's really important for patients and families dealing with CLL or really any kind of a cancer or any blood cancer to know that they really are in control and in charge of what happens. They don't always have control of whether their cancer is cured or what the ultimate outcome is, but they always have control over what happens to them along the way, what they go through, what they don't, what they're willing to go through, and what gets talked about with their cancer care team. So it's a mistake to feel like their voice can't be heard or or shouldn't be a louder voice in the exam room when they're visiting with the oncologists and with the nurses and the nurse practitioners and PAs and so on, even though that time is sometimes shorter than, than we all want it to be, that really they should feel empowered to have those discussions center around the things that are most important to them. And I think actually most of us who are caring for people with this disease, with these diseases, really want to know what's most important to our patients, but we don't always know how to have those discussions. We need help sometimes, and if the patients bring it up and are feeling empowered, that that can really help us. And they can help you the most. Absolutely. Dr. LeBlanc, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge and insight about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And I hope that you'll come back on the show. Maybe we'll do a show on AML in the very near future and keep us up to date on the latest advancements in blood cancers generally. Thanks so much, Linda. I'd be really happy to. It's been fun. We're going we're gonna to hold you to that. And so for our <laughs> listeners, for more information about the Cancer Support Community's study of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or to participate in the study, please go visit www.cancerexperienceregistry.org. It's been my pleasure to host you today. Kim Tebaldo, as I mentioned, will be back with you next week. As mentioned earlier in the show, the cancer support community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call us. Our helpline number is 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, Live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.